Chapter 3. A New Dimension, Time Joe Smith did indeed plant his corn and soybeans in April, dusty as it was. Then, just like a clutch quarterback, nature threw a 40-yard Hail Mary pass right when the team needed it most. Inches and inches of rain poured down across Iowa in late May and all through the month of June, interspersed with beautiful, sunny, humid days. For some reason, every time Joe drove out to scout a cornfield, he saw the plants at just a few inches tall, and he thought of his own children when they were infants. He could get very close to their fresh, fresh skin and examine every part of their being with a single long look. In that look could be all his hopes and dreams for their future lives, all his awe and all his curiosity about the challenges they would have to face. At about knee-high, the corn plants reminded him of his own kids as kindergartners, just heading off to start showing the world the promise of what they could achieve. But now it was mid-July, and Joe's corn plants were rounding the corner past puberty and singularly focused on sex. Of course, corn plants mostly have sex with themselves, via pollen falling from the top shock down to the ear silks below, sometimes with some interspersing of seed between other plants as the wind carried it. But was that so different than teenagers, really? Joe had always been the kind of guy to half-jokingly threaten his daughter's boyfriends with death and dismemberment each Saturday night. But for his corn plants, he was a huge proponent of activities that lead to reproduction. Successful pollination was what allowed each little yellow kernel to come into being and eventually tumble into Joe's combine hopper. Or so he hoped. He had scouted all his fields this morning, and they were all ready for the big task ahead of them, even the ones that he'd planted latest in early May. But he had also clicked through the various weather apps on his smartphone that morning. There was no rain in the forecast, and the daily highs for the next ten days were expected to reach the high 90s. All that was okay for now. The corn could use its deep roots to siphon June's excess moisture out of the soil, and plants need sunshine for heat as much as they need rain in order to make and store energy. But Joe's heart sank when he saw the other string of numbers listed on the 10-day forecast, the nightly lows. 72, 75, 73, 77, too hot. Corn plants spend their summertime days frantically producing energy, but they need cool, and preferably dry, nights to rest and respirate the moisture back out of their leaf surfaces. If they don't get such conditions, the whole process gets stifled. Joe thought everybody pretty well understood that if it gets too hot and dry during July's pollination stages, the corn silks can desiccate and wither away without conceiving new kernels. But he wondered if others realized the disaster that was bearing down on them this year if the corn plants continued to stand green and happy, but too exhausted to reproduce. So he picked up his phone and called the elevator. The new trainee they had just brought in for a rotation in Iowa answered the phone, somewhat unenthusiastically. Mungus Grain, Jason. Ah, uh, hey there, Jason. I was wondering if Dale was around. Dale? Ah, uh, nope. Not in yet this morning. Can I help you? Well, this is Joe Smith. 
I guess, can you just tell him I'm a little worried about filling my corn harvest contracts? Or, I don't know, probably not worried, really. Just, uh, could you have him call me back and walk me through what's going to happen if the crop fails and I don't end up with anything to bring in? Uh, I don't know if we can do that. Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to talk to Dale. I mean, why wouldn't you be able to bring your stuff here as well as anywhere? It's not a matter of the elevator, it's a matter of the grain maybe not getting grown. And then Joe explained to Jason about the problems with pollination on hot nights and didn't hang up the phone until he was confident the kid had actually written down a note with his name and phone number on it for Dale. The next phone call Jason answered was from Steve, an employee of Edgecast Brokerage, through whom Mungus Grain traded grain contracts on the Chicago Board of Trade. This was back in the days when traders used to work on the floor of the CBOT, and Steve was one of those floor brokers. He was a tall guy whose long fingers were well-suited for signaling corn lots for sale or purchase among that pit of other traders, all swarming around in their brightly colored jackets. Steve had been trying to fill a large spread trade for the Mungus Grain Company for several days, and was finally able to call up and say he'd filled the last few contracts that morning. Plus, he liked to catch up with what was going on out in the countryside, and to share the gossip from the floor in Chicago. So when Jason, who Steve would have thought was too inexperienced to know the agronomic implications of poor pollination, shared Joe's fears about the upcoming hot nights, Steve definitely filed that away in his quick, efficient mind and already started pondering if some risk premium was justified for the new crop prices. He turned the thought over and over in his head all day, like polishing a stone, but other than asking the folks in Edgecast's research department to do a little digging and see if the high nighttime temperatures were forecast to be widespread, Steve told no one. No one, that is, until he met up with his brother, Stan, at Peanuts Tavern later that Friday. At that time, the grain pits closed at 2 o'clock p.m. each day, which facilitated a certain amount of afternoon dipsomania among the participants. Stan Clark was the head trader at Verandry Capital Management, a Chicago hedge fund that specialized in discretionary trading of the global commodity markets. He made it his business to anticipate every shock to the supply or demand of every grain market all over the world. But the hot nights and poor pollination prospects were news to him, a very delicious little morsel of news. He cut out after only three doers that afternoon to go pore over midterm weather forecasts and academic studies from the agronomy departments of seven different land-grant universities. He was still researching at midday on Saturday when his wife dragged him out of his home office to attend a neighbor's barbecue. In Chicago, grain traders get treated somewhat like doctors. At any social event, they could always expect to be asked to freely offer thousands of dollars worth of advice. Bob Albany was a good sort of neighbor, especially in light of his legendary neighborhood barbecues, so Stan didn't begrudge him a few questions about the prospects for commodity prices. Bob had only recently put a few thousand dollars into a managed trading account to speculate in commodities, and he was still thinking it was going to be as easy as asking Stan for a killer tip. 
shouldn't it work like horse racing, where the insiders have some secret knowledge to beat the odds? Fortunately for Bob, Stan was feeling reckless that morning, and he really just wanted to get out of the conversation and go get a beer. So he put his hand on Bob's shoulder, looked him in the eye, and said, Bob, buy December corn. And then he walked away. Bob was initially thrilled, but then he realized his neighbor hadn't told him when to buy, at what price, for how long, or why. We've talked about trading grain according to what type it is, how good it is, and where it is. Now it's time to introduce a new dimension to grain trading. Time. With this dimension comes a new kind of grain contract, the forward contract. Remember that farmers are inherently long in the grain markets for years and years to come, all the years they intend to still be farming. If it's July, for instance, Joe Smith would have planted his corn a few months ago and been watching it grow. Depending how well the weather has supported the corn's growing condition, he might have a pretty good idea how many bushels his corn will yield, and therefore how many bushels he will have to bring to market in the fall. Except in the case of a weather disaster, the corn is basically already made, and essentially just needs to be picked up and delivered to town in a few months' time. So Joe could write up his own cash grain position like a merchandiser would. For this example, let's say his field is going to yield 24,000 bushels of corn in October. So Joe is long 24,000 bushels in October. Forward Grain Positions Since he can consider himself long October bushels, he can also offset that long position by selling the corn. All he would have to do is call up his local elevator or cattle feeder, or ethanol plant, or whomever, and trade a forward cash grain contract with the merchandiser. Call back to mind the sample grain contract, the spot wheat load, between Joe and the Springfield Farmers Co-op. There are two entries dealing with time on any cash grain contract, the date the contract is written, and the delivery period. A spot sale has the same contract date and delivery date, but a cash contract for a forward sale could have a contract date sometime in July and have the delivery period written as October 1st through October 31st. Or, because harvest weather is so uncertain, the co-op may be willing to write an October-slash-November contract and the delivery period could be October 1st through November 30th. Remember, the co-op is going to have to account for this purchase in their position, too. If Joe sells them the whole 24,000 bushels for October-November delivery, the co-op's October-November corn position just grew by 24,000 bushels. Think of the implications for this forward contracting ability. The co-op can be simultaneously long October-November corn and short February-March corn. If that were the case, it would imply they intend to buy a lot of corn at harvest hold it in their elevator for a few months, then sell it in the spring. That's a pretty typical pattern, but there's no law saying a merchandiser's month-to-month -month grain position has to be orderly and in line with harvest. The co-op's position could look like past due corn bushels, 2,000 bushels. June-July corn bushels, long 5,000 bushels. August-September, short 
15,000 bushels. October-November, long 24,000 bushels. Dece-January, short 100,000 bushels. Feb-March, short 300,000 bushels. Net, short 384,000 bushels. Examine how the co-op's forward cash grain position can be long, the positive numbers that show they've committed to buy more bushels in a time frame than they've committed to sell in that time frame, or short, with negative numbers that mean they've locked in more sales than purchases for that time frame, independently in each different time frame. For instance, you can see they are long in past due corn, possibly from an old contract they bought from a farmer who still hasn't delivered the corn to the elevator yet. They have about five trucks worth of corn bought for the June-July time frame, probably from farmers who expect to clean out their corn bins in the summer before harvest. But at some point between now and the end of September, the merchandisers must buy 8,000 more bushels to fulfill their short obligation for the 15,000 August-September bushels. The merchandisers probably made the August-September sale knowing they would get a little corn coming in as spot loads throughout the summer, and they know they'll need to clear it out before harvest to make space for the new crop of corn. Logically, the 2,000 past due bushels and the 5,000 June-July bushels can be used to offset that short because the elevator will receive them and be able to store them for use in August and September. If the elevator had an existing inventory of corn they were already storing, that could also be used to offset forward sales. In this example, the elevator has no inventory of corn. They must have cleared it all out before June. After September, the elevator will get into the typical harvest time frame in their geographical region. Note that whatever they buy for the October-November position can't be used to physically offset the earlier August-September sale because those new crop bushels won't yet be in the elevator's possession. Shorting a Forward Market Just as Joe Smith can sell October corn he hasn't fully produced yet, an elevator can sell grain it hasn't really bought yet. The winter and spring sales were made with the confidence that the elevator will be able to buy hundreds of thousands of bushels before those short obligations need to be met, most likely at harvest, that's October-November. Joe Smith has already committed to bringing his 24,000 bushels of corn in during that time frame, and other farmers will likely join him in making forward sales contracts, as well as all the farmers who will bring in their corn at harvest and spot out cash contracts at the prevailing price. But until those bushels come in, the math works out to show that, in all, the elevator's merchandisers have a bearish short position in corn of 384,000 bushels, with a lot of their sales committed in the February-March time frame. That's in the future. There must have been good prices bid to them for corn delivered in that time frame. Think about to whom the co-op must be selling that corn. An ethanol plant? A dairy farm? Whoever the end user is for that corn... They know they're going to need it December, January, February, and March. In fact, if you're an ethanol plant or a dairy farm or basically any other end user of corn, you are going to need to have corn to operate your business every single day of the year. 
without feedstock for your fermenting tanks or your dairy cattle, you'd have to shut down. So in exactly the same way that Joe Smith and every other farmer is perpetually long in the grain markets, the local ethanol plant and every other end user of grain is perpetually short. Even though an ethanol plant's merchandiser will probably never write a forward sales contract for corn, he can still represent the plant's anticipated usage as a short position, a negative number, on his own cash grain position. It's a short position in the sense that he has to buy the grain and then, quote, sell it to the plant's operating processes. And end-user's grain purchase is always an offsetting trade to its inherent, perpetually short grain needs. Once a merchandiser buys grain using forward contracts to cover his company's needs for the next few upcoming months, he'll just have to buy more grain for the months after that, and the months after that, in a constant cycle. Selecting a time frame. So for end users, every available time frame of the market needs to be watched and traded with equal care. Many times, end users don't have a lot of storage space for grain because they may not want to use up capital to build storage or maybe they just don't want to face the risk of handling grain and keeping it in condition. That makes it more difficult for them to apply inventories from one time frame to the future needs of an upcoming time frame. But the seasonality of grain markets creates good buying opportunities in some time frames and challenging buying environments at other times. An end user's merchandiser really has his work cut out for him, watching each time frame of the market independently and actively managing his forward cash grain position. For farmers and local elevators, the physical reality of grain production seasons makes certain trading decisions more obvious in some time frames than others. If a farmer doesn't have enough storage space on his own farm, usually metal grain bins, to hold an entire harvest's worth of grain, he will obviously have to bring some grain to market in the fall. Logistically, he also has to consider when he's going to market the rest of the grain that's been stored in his bins. Will he be able to access the bins in the middle of winter if there's a lot of snow? Will there be load restrictions on the gravel roads around a farm if wet spring weather makes them too muddy? If he harvested the grain a little wet, how many months can he keep it in the grain bin before it starts to get damaged? Hot summer months facilitate mold and grain damage more quickly than cold winter months. All of these considerations must be planned for. A farmer can write a forward contract with his local elevator for any upcoming month he chooses, but he has to consider which time frame makes the most sense, not only for prices, but also for his own logistics. A few complexities. Elevators, the most important storage and throughput tools of the overall grain supply chain, have logistical considerations too. In the example above, the merchandisers wanted to sell off the entire corn inventory before harvest so they could bring in as many new crop bushels as possible. In theory, an elevator should always be focused on maximizing the number of bushels they receive and handle, because their profit margins will be slim as a per-bushel measurement, but they can make up for slim margins with huge volumes. 
In reality, merchandisers often have to forego a perfect logistical solution for the sake of customer service issues or the limitations of their facilities. Merchandisers are also likely to be juggling more than one commodity at a time. Not only are they managing a forward cash grain position for all their corn purchases and sales, but also a similar position for soybeans, oats, milo, sunflowers, several different segregated varieties of wheat, whatever is being grown locally. Managing the inventory and keeping it in condition may be a job for the elevator superintendent or operations staff, but managing the buying and selling decisions is the job of the merchandiser, who needs to be an expert in each of those markets for every time frame available for trade. The market for March soybeans might be very hot, but the market for February corn might be offering similar profits. The merchandiser must consider his logistical ability to store both grains past harvest before he can go capitalize on those opportunities, and it may be the case that he only has bin space for one crop or the other. Hedging the future. Farmers too need to pay attention to market prices in future timeframes. The decision whether to forward contract fall bushels. Or just spot them out as they're coming out of the field depends entirely on each farmer's individual bullish or bearish opinion. If Joe Smith's neighbor Gary Green believes prices will be stronger in the fall, why would he commit himself to selling at summer prices? Meanwhile, if Joe is confident he can make a profit at the prices being offered now, and feels that prices are likely to drop before he gets his corn harvested. He wouldn't want to risk being long in the market. He would want to forward sell his corn now and lock in those profitable prices, as any good businessman would. This is the practice of hedging. A hedge transaction today can be thought of as a substitute for a transaction that is going to happen sometime in the future. Joe knows he's going to sell his physical corn after harvest. But he can write a forward contract on paper today that will represent his not yet harvested corn. If prices go down before he actually takes the physical grain to market, he will still receive the price written on the contract today. On the other, not so appealing side of the coin, if prices go up before he takes the physical grain to market, he'll still only receive the price written on the contract today. Disciplined hedgers are willing to forego that uncertain chance of higher prices. They have confidence in their profitability today, and they prefer feeling that confidence rather than spending the next several months with the risk looming over them that they could lose everything. Hedging is therefore more than just a transfer of grain ownership; it's a transfer of price risk from seller to buyer. Once Joe trades that forward contract with the elevator, the elevator has committed to paying today's price for that grain, no matter what. It's the elevator's problem to figure out what they're going to do if the market drops before Joe brings in the grain, and they end up writing a check for two dollars per bushel higher than the prevailing market value. Fortunately, both sellers and buyers can make hedges. You may be familiar with airlines buying years' worth of fuel needs to lock in prices. In that instance, 
the airline would sign a contract as a substitute for a later purchase, and remove the risk of fuel prices rising before they can take ownership of physical fuel needs. That's another example of hedging from the buyer's perspective. Grain buyers, like elevators, feedlots, flour mills, etc., also do this. A price for all seasons. To make this idea of offering fall corn prices in July clearer, here's what a weekly record of the co-op's corn bids might eventually look like once harvest rolls around. Notice that because their grain position can be broken out into different time frames, the prices they bid for each of those time frames can be totally different. July corn and November corn are effectively two different markets because there are two different supply and demand situations in the summer when the previous year's crop is almost all used up, and the fall when a glut of newly harvested grain will flood the market. So on July fifteenth, for example, the co-op may be bidding four dollars per bushel for corn in July, and bidding. Four dollars and twenty-five cents for corn in the August-September timeframe, and bidding four dollars and fifty cents for corn in the October-November timeframe. Once August rolls around and they no longer have a July corn bid, perhaps their August-September corn bid has fallen to four dollars and twenty-two cents, and their October-November corn bid has fallen to four dollars and forty-nine cents. At the end of September, their final August-September corn bid for the old crop corn may be four dollars and sixty-five cents, but by that time, their new crop October-November corn bid may have fallen to four dollars and twenty-six cents. Finally, at the end of October, when they obviously no longer have a July corn bid nor an August-September corn bid, the remaining corn bid for the October-November timeframe—that's new crop corn. Has perhaps fallen as far as four dollars per bushel. In the full week by week table showing this example, you can see the whole corn market sank lower during the last three weeks of July. This was true for both old crop corn, the corn which was harvested in the previous year and which is still being stored and bought and used in July, August, and September. And for new crop corn, that's the corn which is still growing out in farmers' fields and which will be used in the upcoming year. It's typical on any given day or week that corn bids for all time frames would move roughly up or down together. However, that's not always the case, as we see in this example. During August and September, the old crop bids gradually gained nearly fifty cents. Perhaps the supply of old crop corn was growing scarce in the months leading up to harvest, and buyers had to bid more aggressively to get the corn they needed. But while those old crop bids were moving higher, the new crop bids lost more than twenty cents. They went on to lose another twenty-six cents before the end of October. Perhaps it was becoming clearer to corn buyers that the crop out in the field was showing excellent prospects for high yields, and because a large new supply was anticipated, the bids fell lower and lower. Market bearishness about new crop bushels really is a matter of counting one's chickens before they hatch. Nobody can say with one hundred percent certainty what quantity of grain will ultimately be harvested before harvest even begins. However, the bearishness is usually justified. 
Nobody wants to pay too much in May for forward-contracted grain that farmers will eventually have to unload at lower prices once a glut of supply hits the market. In this example, the spread between old crop and new crop corn widened from a positive 25-cent carry on July 15th to a negative 39-cent inverse by the time harvest got started at the beginning of October. We'll discuss spreads in much more detail later, but for now, just be aware that grain prices are typically higher in later, more deferred timeframes, and subtracting the nearby price from a deferred price will give you either a positive, typical number, or a negative, inverted number, and we call that number the spread. Of course, Joe wouldn't have been able to see into the future and know what the co-op would be bidding for corn once harvest actually got started. As it happened, his decision to hedge his 24,000 bushels of corn with a new crop forward contract in July was a good one. He locked in a $4.50 per bushel price for his corn instead of showing up at the elevator with uncontracted corn in October and receiving the spot bid of only $4 per bushel. It cost him absolutely nothing, and he ultimately protected $12,000 of income. That's 50 cents times his 24,000 bushels. In hindsight, then why wouldn't every farmer write these forward contracts? Because again, no one can perfectly predict the future. Remember, while Joe was making that forward contract, his neighbor, Gary Green, was under the belief that new crop corn prices would move higher by fall, perhaps because of poor weather or unrelated macroeconomic reasons. If Gary Green had been right, and the new crop corn prices had moved from $4.50 to $5 per bushel between July and October, he would have been glad he allowed himself the opportunity to receive that higher price. Joe, meanwhile, would have still received just $4.50 per bushel for his corn, and he would have effectively lost the opportunity to make an extra $12,000 in income. Joe wrote that forward contract to have a safe, free guarantee that he would receive a profitable price for his crop. But it did cost him something. Opportunity. I say forward contracts are free. And that's true in the sense that the co-op or ethanol plant or whoever is on the other side of the contract typically doesn't charge any fee for the contract. However, there are obviously opportunity costs associated with forward contracts, and not just because the market's overall price might change. When Joe called up the merchandiser at the Springfield Farmers Co-op to write that forward contract to sell 24,000 newly harvested bushels, he agreed to sell those bushels to the Springfield Farmers Co-op and only the Springfield Farmers Co-op. It won't matter if... When October rolls around, the Springfield ethanol plant is bidding five cents more per bushel than the co-op is, or if the Mungus Grain Company, 25 miles away, is bidding 50 cents better. Joe has locked in the decision to sell those bushels to Springfield Farmers Co-op at that contracted price. So that's another piece of opportunity cost, the lost opportunity to shop around for the best bids at the time of delivery. A Bushel's Best Home 
In fact, that's the very reason why elevators willingly offer forward contracting opportunities to farmers. They take on more risk when they agree to buy grain at a certain price in the future. But remember, their profits really come from the small margins they make on handling vast numbers of bushels. They compete with all other elevators and grain users in a geographical area to get their hands on those bushels, and anything they can do to bring in more and more bushels is a boon to their business. We talked a bit in the previous chapter about how merchandisers use geographical arbitrage opportunities to buy grain where it's lower priced, pay to transport it somewhere where it's higher priced, and profit from the difference. Farmers need to go through a similar process to decide where to sell their grain. The difference is that they don't have to buy the grain; they can just assume ownership of their future production. But they do have to consider how transportation costs figure into their sales decisions. Consider Gary Green, who didn't forward contract his grain before harvest. Autumn rolls around, and he's got several truckloads of corn that he can either take to the Springfield Farmers Co-op, which is five miles away from his farm, or the Springfield Ethanol Plant, ten miles away from his farm, or the Mungus Grain Company, which is twenty-five miles away from his farm. Here's the decision process he has to go through. The first potential buyer is the Springfield Co-op, which is bidding four dollars per bushel. The cost for moving the grain five miles is point seven five cents per bushel. Gary Green also has to consider that his brother-in-law is the manager of the co-op. The second potential buyer is the Springfield Ethanol Plant, who is bidding four dollars and five cents per bushel, but the cost to transport the grain ten miles is one and a half cents per bushel. Gary Green also has to consider that his trucks would have to wait in line for two hours to unload grain at the ethanol plant. The final potential buyer is the Mungus Grain Company, who is bidding four dollars and fifty cents per bushel. The cost to transport the grain twenty-five miles is three point seven five cents per bushel. And Gary Green also has to consider that sometimes Mungus Grain Company is slow to pay. The cost per bushel to transport the grain is figured by first knowing what it costs per mile to move a truckload of grain. In this example, Gary Green is assuming seventy-five cents per mile for fuel, insurance, and maintenance on his own grain truck. But that's because he will personally drive the grain wherever it needs to go. If he had to hire a commercial trucking company to move the grain for him, it could easily be double or triple that amount, and those rates change from week to week depending on market conditions. So, to take grain to the Springfield Ethanol Plant, for instance, Gary Green would have to drive his truck twenty miles—that's ten miles there and ten miles back—spending fifteen dollars per trip. That's seventy-five cents per mile times twenty miles. He can evenly allocate that fifteen-dollar cost among the one thousand bushels he can fit on his grain truck. Some trucks may hold more or less volume of grain, and if he was hauling a heavier grain like soybeans, which weigh sixty pounds per bushel, the legal load restrictions may also limit the volume of bushels in any given truckload. But for a mathematically simple load of one thousand bushels of corn. Gary Green's cost per bushel works out to one and a half cents per bushel to haul corn to the ethanol plant. 
That may seem like an incredibly small number, but remember that grain is likely to be traded in high-volume contracts. If you're contracting 50,000 bushels to one location or another, an extra penny per bushel in shipping costs amounts to an extra $500 saved or lost. So if Gary Green is being a very conscientious businessman, here is how his final decision matrix will look. The Springfield Co-op, with their bid of $4 per bushel delivered to the Springfield Co-op, equates to a bid of $3.9925 FOB, or that is free on board at Gary Green's farm. The Springfield Ethanol Plant, with a bid of $4.05 per bushel delivered to the ethanol plant, works out to a bid of $4.035 bid FOB Gary Green's farm. And the Mungus Grain Company, with a bid of $4.50 per bushel delivered to the Mungus Grain Company, works out to a bid of $4.46.25 FOB Gary Green's Farm. Gary's decision? Sell to the Mungus Grain Company. Here again, we are using the delivered and FOB, or free on board, terminology, even though Gary Green isn't planning to sell his grain FOB off his farm. Instead, here it's just used as part of the conventional language of calculating grain prices to represent what the grain should be worth to him on his own farm. If he couldn't call up a merchandiser at either the Springfield Farmers Co-op or the Springfield Ethanol Plant and negotiate a better bid than what they're currently showing, a bid that would work out to $4.46.25 or better after transportation costs, Gary Green is going to be economically motivated to sell his corn to the Mungus Grain Company. Why would the merchandisers at Mungus be willing to pay so much more per bushel than their Springfield competition? Maybe they previously sold a train load's worth of corn, and they have to urgently source enough bushels to fill it up. Or maybe the corn crop around the Mungus elevator got hailed out, and they're not faced with a glut of supply like Springfield is. Maybe their customers are so sick of being paid late that they've had to start bidding aggressively just to buy grain at all. Those considerations aren't negligible. If the Mungus bid wasn't so much better than either of the Springfield bids, or if Gary Green was unwilling to drive that far away to deliver his grain, it wouldn't be uncommon for a farmer like him to choose Springfield Farmers Co-op over Springfield Ethanol Plant as the buyer for his grain, even if he will earn the equivalent of four and a half cents less per bushel. Long waits to unload grain are extremely inefficient for farmers' operations, especially at harvest time. Their time, time which could be spent harvesting more grain, is worth more than the four and a half cents per bushel. Also, brother-in-law or not, farmers tend to build and honor relationships with certain grain merchandisers or certain companies and be more willing to sell their bushels to them, even at a less favorable price. Furthermore, there is an underlying benefit to doing business at a local co-op. Depending on the volume of grain a farmer sells to a co-op, or on the volume of inputs he buys, like chemicals, fertilizers, seed, animal feed, cooperatives distribute cash and or stock in return for that patronage. The stock may be subject to limitations on when it can be sold or how old a patron must be before he sells it. 
These details and the specific rates for cooperative distributions are unique to each individual cooperative, but to the degree that a farmer's annual patronage benefit can be calculated, it should be included in the economic decision of where to sell grain. And that's just from a financial perspective. Some farmers will develop an innate loyalty to their local co-op because they are on the board of directors, or because they feel the co-op, being owned by them and their neighbors, is more likely to be acting in local farmers' best interest when pricing grain and inputs. An Imperfect Mission It's in keeping with the mission of a co-op to offer a product that can help farmers lay off their risk in the notoriously volatile grain markets. Forward contracts are the cheap, simple way to do that. However, there is only so much risk a co-op, or any other elevator or other grain buyer, will be willing to take in order to accumulate bushels from their farmer customers. Just as insurance companies can go to reinsurance companies to lay off their risk, Grain companies can either choose not to trade if the rewards don't outweigh the risks, or they can hedge any purchases or sales they themselves have forward contracted. Farmers, on the other hand, can't possibly lock out all their risk for every upcoming year. They may be perpetually long grain in every year they expect to still be farming, up to the year 2050, say but they would struggle to find anyone willing to take the other side of forward contracts for 2050's crop. Or for any time frame past the next immediate year's crop, frankly, so they're unable to offset a huge proportion of their overall lifetime long position. Forward contracts are nevertheless a critical innovation in grain trading. Unless they could prearrange a profitable price from urban grain buyers, Ancient Egyptian farmers may not have taken the risk of buying seed, preparing soil, then planting a field and trusting the fickle weather to produce their crops and support a civilization. Similarly, the same rice brokers in 15th century feudal Japan, who started warehousing and trading grain, can be credited with formally creating contracts that represented and put a price on upcoming grain production. Forward contracts. Building a Trading Empire Readers with a certain entrepreneurial mindset will already be thinking of the outstanding arbitrage opportunities made available through forward contracts, opportunities across time, across space, and across all the features of any kind of grain. Perhaps you are already contemplating a trading program and just wondering how you can get your hands on some of those forward contracts. The unfortunate fact is that unless you yourself are a farmer or a grain merchandiser, you won't have access to trade forward contracts. These are legal contracts representing actual grain and actual cash. If you are an individual investor sitting in your Ocean View loft in Miami, what are you going to do with 1,000 bushels of real physical corn showing up in a grain truck at your building's gate? Maybe your admittedly clever answer is, well, I'll just buy some storage space out there in the corn belt and run my own little elevator operation. Or, well, I'll just do what those cross-country traders do and buy the grain from one source and ship it somewhere else without ever taking possession. That sounds good enough, but the next challenge you'll run into is that such trading is illegal for any entity who isn't a bonded, licensed grain dealer. 
State laws prohibit grain trading or grain transportation by any entity who isn't licensed. For example, quote, to conduct grain dealer business in Nebraska without a grain dealer's license is a class four felony punishable by five years in prison and or a $10,000 fine, end quote. A grain dealer's license can be obtained by applying to an individual state's public service commission or similar department, then paying an application fee, disclosing the size of your intended grain trading operation, disclosing all your current financial information, which will be audited, probably undergoing a criminal background check, and then posting a bond based on some percentage of the value of grain you intend to buy. This is all so that you can't take ownership of somebody's grain in that state, then run off without paying for that grain, defrauding the state's citizens. There are some exceptions. An entity may be federally licensed rather than state licensed, and livestock feeders can usually buy grain without having to go through the licensing process. However, that means an entity who sells grain to an unlicensed livestock feeder faces additional risk if that feeder goes bankrupt. A bankruptcy court will consider that grain seller a creditor, but the state and federal price support programs might not be able to offer recourse to any posted security. There may be state-level indemnification programs to backstop some farmers' and ranchers' losses, but these vary from state to state. In any case, it makes sense for a grain seller to spend a little time investigating the legal and financial status of any counterparties. Maybe your ideas for building a trading program that arbitrages high-protein spring wheat from the Dakotas against the underpriced protein value of Arkansas soybean meal is so innovative, so filled with profit potential, that you really think it makes sense to go get your own grain dealer's license. Okay, the next challenge you'll run into is that no one will sell anything to you. They might buy grain from you because there really isn't much risk in agreeing to take physical delivery of a product before you write the seller a check. There is a lot of risk, however, in agreeing to turn over physical grain to some unknown, untrusted buyer who may or may not ever cut you a good check, whether that buyer is licensed or not. The concept of counterparty risk is a huge consideration behind every commercial grain trade particularly in volatile market conditions, when a wild price shift can quickly bankrupt any elevator or ethanol plant if it doesn't have a sound risk management strategy, grain traders must watch their trading counterparts very closely for any accounting signal that they may not be able to pay for the grain they've bought. So that's another thing about starting your own cash grain trading operation. You'd better have very deep pockets. If you'll be buying from some experienced trading entities and selling to others, assume that you won't be making wild profits on each individual bushel you trade. Rather, you'll be aiming for the same low-margin, high-volume market space currently occupied by every other elevator and grain trading company in business. Now assume you're going to have to buy and fully pay for some of the bushels before you ever see full payment for the bushels you've turned around and sold. You must be prepared to pay cash up front for a high volume of bushels. Just for argument's sake, let's say your new private little trading company is going to start out with a 50,000 bushel corn trade on which you expect to make 
five-cent margins. Let's say corn is running about $5 a bushel at the time of the trade. You could potentially end up paying out a quarter of a million dollars in cash for several weeks before you see your money back, plus the anticipated $2,500 profit. There are easier, safer ways to make a 1% return on a quarter of a million dollars. A savings account comes to mind. Risky work and tricky, too. I just implied that cash grain trading isn't easy. It's not. And I'm not just talking about developing the analysis and intuition and negotiation skills to identify and execute good trades. I'm talking about the mechanics of doing it, too. You could be the cleverest grain trader in North America, coming up with great low-risk arbitrage trades with really meaty expected margins. But you also must be able to pick up the phone and get somebody on the other end to trade with you in order to make your ideas work. It's hard to get people to sell grain to you, and not just because they're concerned about counterparty risk, although that's a big part of it. Especially if you are trying to buy grain from farmers, trust plays a big part in any trade. Ideally, a farmer doesn't like to sell his grain to anyone who doesn't fully understand his operation's challenges. Because if something goes wrong, he'd like to be confident that he can communicate to the merchandiser on the other side of his grain contracts and have that person get it. Personality plays a big part in grain trading. Aggressive negotiators may be well-suited to some parts of the industry, and other parts of the industry reward good listeners with a certain background or communication style valued by farmers. In some cases, it can take a lot of relationship building to develop a client base from which you can source grain or from which you can receive competitive bids. That 50,000 bushel grain trade you have in mind might take 300 phone calls or 50 farm visits or both or neither. Sometimes it's about more than just the price. And sometimes the right number will get you anything you need. Anyway, if it all sounds like it's prohibitively complex for an individual investor to trade cash grain contracts, that's because it is. Don't despair, though. There's an excellent role for investors to take in the grain markets, too.